This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take me. Give me all you got! Listen. Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's L.A. crime opus, Heat, one minute at a time. Hi, Blake. Sorry, I don't have a camera attached to my computer. I do apologize for that. No, that's totally fine. If you can see me, that's good because you can share the screen, but it's totally fine. I'm only recording the audio. Okay, perfect. How you doing? Good. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, thank you for inviting me. You, are, uh, you, you, may, you may know that I've had Garth Franklin on the show many times, and he's a friend, and uh, I believe like you guys at Film Freak Central and Dark Horizons are like original gangsters of this entire game on the internet. So, um, <laughs> um, so it's a pleasure and an honor to have you on the show. Oh, well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. You guys are doing some great stuff, man. I'm a big admirer. I've only, I, I must admit, I was only a few years ago that I, because I was sort of in stuck in a loop, a hot, my little hyper loop of the internet. I wasn't as familiar with you guys, but since then I've read you voraciously. So I was uh, very keen to have yourself and and Walter on the show um, uh, because I felt like it's uh, to be a completist with all my favorite people on the internet. It had to be you guys. <laughs> Sorry, Blake. Uh, I'm- Okay, yeah, I'm back. Sorry about that. I had a little problem with my computer. No, all good, all good. So, um, I'll just uh, uh, I'll just kick off uh, us doing an introduction. If there's any other questions you want to ask, we can you can ask them now, and then I'll get the recording ready to rock and roll, and then we can start. Um, you can see me, right? Obviously, on your computer. Yep. Great. So what I'll do is I'll just share the screen so we can watch the minute live again to refresh. Um, just, sure. uh, I like to just do it even if we've sort of studied it and I, 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 you know, do my own prep for the show, but I like to just get it on there because I feel like it's a nice little sort of, um, conversation starter and, and, and we can go from there. Sure. Excellent. All right. Here we go. One thirty-nine. Oh my goodness. This show is flying. All right, can you just talk on me, Bill, and I'll just test the uh, the your levels? Okay, one, two, three, four, testing, testing. Excellent, thank you, that's perfect. All right, here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and joining me for the 139th minute of Michael Mann's 1995 crime opus is... Well, you know, I've, I've said this many times before, uh, Garth Franklin uh, and Dark Horizons, one of the OGs of online movie geek websites and i feel like the man i'm speaking to today is a, a complete contemporary and alumni um much like sort of michael mann um hovering as a maverick on the on the on the side there um uh, with his amazing site um film freak central he partners with walter chaw his name is bill chambers he's the editor of film freak central bill welcome to one eight minute thanks so much for being here thank you for having me so Bill and I are right at the tail end of one of the most 
uh, it's sort of at the punctuation of one of the most emotional scenes um, of the entire film in this Michael Mann saga. I'm going to dive into it really quickly just up front and then we can talk to Bill all things Michael Mann and all things um, all things Heat and this minute as soon as we do that. So Bill and I are going to listen along um, to the minute now and watch together and you guys are going to listen along and we're going to come back and talk about it. Yeah, this guy's John Peterson. Valid ID, car's registered to the last name Bukowski, first name Gene, ran it to DMV, it's clean. Let him go. Roger. Thank you very much, have a good evening. It's a no-go, Vince. like a cup of coffee while we wait, Mrs. Chihurlis? Yeah, that'd be nice. Indeed, that would be nice. Bill, before we dive into the minute, you're sure. an aficionado of, I think my favorite thing I've ever read of yours was a sort of retrospective around the Breakfast Club and John Hughes films, another Chicagoan who made up um, fictional Illinois places. Um, but uh, Michael Mann is a filmmaker. Is, it, is he a guy that you've revisited often or reviewed often? What, where does he sit in the pantheon for you? Well, I've, I think I've only reviewed really one of his movies in depth, and that would be Thief. Yes. But I'm, I, he is certainly someone uh, I have revisited probably more than any other filmmaker, to be honest with you. Uh, according to Letterboxd, anyway. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Letterboxd helps. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, he's he's someone that I find um, constantly rewarding or continually rewarding. And uh, uh, I want to write more about him in the future, but I just haven't got around to it. Well, it's okay. You do you do you guys do a fair bit of coverage on uh, on Film Freak. You can't begrudge that. Um, so speaking of heat and this minute, in particular, is Heat one of those films that you you constantly revisited? Is this is this scene, this performance, this tension that is sort of uh, welling up towards the end of this movie? How's you know? What are your immediate thoughts from just this scene? I'd love to I'd love to pick your brain about the film in total. The film in total, and then this scene. Well, uh, Thief or sorry, Heat is certainly. Uh, Something I I probably watch it once a year to be honest with you. Yes. Um, I, I at least for the past few years I've seen it once a year. Uh, I saw it when it came out opening day, and um, I remember that it left me physically exhausted. <laughs> and I thought I, it was which was it was one of those rare movies where you just felt wiped by the end. Yeah. And I liked it a lot, and it was very emotional and very moving. But but I thought I'm I'm I don't think I can handle this movie again for a long time and then i saw it the next day <laughs> that's uh, great and so it gets in the bloodstream somehow it's it's just one of those movies that's i don't know there's always something to dig and uh yeah so so i definitely uh probably heat is uh and public enemies are the two michael mann movies i've seen the most 
but uh, but he yeah it just it's just one of the, the the gift that keeps on giving you know absolutely it's funny that you say that leaves you physically exhausted because I got to see uh, a screening of it very recently in Sydney. They did a 35 mil print uh, at, yes. at a local boutique cinema house here. You know our Rand, what's our Randwick Ritz, um, and uh, and I and I must admit the sound and seeing it in that format and seeing it with a huge audience, um, a very sort of very happy audience to be there. It was an ex- it was really exhausting. And I was riding the roller coaster with three newbies to the film. And uh, that's one word that I, I haven't used yet to describe the experience, <laughs> but it's true. Like they were na- like my, my friend was like, that was intense. Like he was doing lots of heavy breathing afterwards. It was like, we'd run up a few flights of stairs. He was just like, man, that was just, wow. 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 It is. It just puts you through the ringer, you know. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I, I remember too, like when I when I first went to see it, um, opening day matinee, uh, the audience was really into it, and they were laughing and and clapping at moments that that you it felt like they had already seen it. Yes. And I think it was because this movie had sort of been um, marketed like a boxing match. Or like King Kong versus Godzilla. <laughs> it was like Pacino versus De Niro, and so people were were sort of rooting for this fight. But I noticed that 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 enthusiasm kind of waned as the movie went on. And I think I think the the like me, they started getting they were so on edge by this movie that they were starting to get worn out by it. But uh, yeah, <clears throat> it's 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 a really hard it's a really hard balance to strike from an epic like this. To keep you on a nice edge and not to give you any relief, you know, like, you know, like it's, I mean, there are brief moments of levity, which I think helps balance it out and and the different takes on different characters. And and it sort of helps you shift the mood to a certain extent to keep you sort of pulsating through at the pace and the rhythm of the movie. But you're absolutely right. Like as once you hit points, and I think we're, we're really right there, you know, you're hitting the... You're hitting the final, the the home stretch, so to speak, of this movie in the minute that we're covering in this scene particularly, and the just the the percussive nature of like each tragic element of this thing coming together and hitting you. You you you're not you're not the prize fighter in this super fight. You're the punching bag. You're just getting every. You're taking every hit. You're you're taking every hit for every character. Absolutely, in this movie, and it's it's and so good. Especially with that big gunfight in the middle. Oh yeah, which just does you in. Yes, and I think actually this section of the movie that we're talking about today, uh, this is kind of like a lull in the movie that you really need. Yes, and I, I've often thought about a studio probably watching this movie and thinking three hours is too long for it. Yes, but without this kind of sort of languid breathing moment uh, section where you you can you're allowed to kind of wind down from that. Gunfight. I don't think that he would have been as as good or as successful as it has been. No, because a gunfight's just a gunfight, and I suppose when you when you're looking at the arc of the ride, you know we need to be emotionally invested in all the characters to make the gunfight matter, and then we need to mm-hmm. see the consequences of it to make it matter. Otherwise, it's gratuitous because you know if that gunfight just appeared at the beginning of a movie and was explosive, that's like a that's a Bruckheimer, Michael Bay special, you know? It's just like some explosive stuff, some carnage, not a lot of consequence, and you sort of move on. Um, whereas man is much more of a like – a, he's no, like an emotional pragmatist. He wants to make sure that you feel – the you know, he knows that no one gets a free lunch in this movie. 
you know, you, you can only get away with things for a certain amount of time and everything's going to catch up with you. And that's on both sides. That's, you know, if you're about to get ralphed, um, as, uh, as, as Pacino has just recently been ralphed, et cetera, um, or in this moment where, where Chris and Charlene, you know, their relationship is going to be used as leverage to try and catch Neil and his crew. Absolutely. Like, I think that that's one of the, the things that's unique about Michael Mann. Uh, there's a Canadian critic here named Jeff Prevere. Uh, who who says that uh, American films are about action and world cinema or Canadian films uh, are about consequences. And I think that that Michael Mann is maybe the exception to that rule because he, he does want you to know the damage that violence does. And uh, like you say, with, with, with the gunfight, um, you're absolutely dealing with the fallout of that for the rest of the movie. Yes. So... And that's unusual in American cinema. You know, American cinema usually the gunfight, the climax. It's that's the it. end of the movie. That's it. <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's, and, uh, there's only one other like populist movie that I think, um, and and it sort of deals with the it deals with the consequences of the gunfight with a lot more gunfighting. But it's like Tombstone is like another movie that you know the OK Corral the you know the Battle of the OK Corral is like it's a sort of mid midway climax of the movie and then the rest of it is fallout like there's a significant amount of fallout and then obviously it's then it's kurt russell as you know wide open riding home and and, and doc holiday like just seeking out revenge and squashing every one of these guys in a much more heroic and you know traditional <laughs> way but uh, i think that that's one reason why tombstone works an absolute treat is because you have the the gunfight and there seems to be like they should be able to ride away into the sunset and then there's lots of death and carnage and fallout um, and and that really kind of twists the movie in a positive way. I hadn't thought about Heat and Tombstone in that, in those, in that uh, um, light before but maybe that's, a, that's a one thing that helps Tombstone still continue to resonate. Yeah, exactly. So here we are. We're at this minute. It is minute 139 of mm-hmm. this movie. We've got Ashley Judd as Charlene Chihalis has just uh, been out on the balcony. We've just missed the gesture. It's in the preceding minutes. She's done the infamous gesture to say, you know, cut loose of this, cut loose of me. Um, and, and she makes a, takes a massive risk for even Dominic herself, Chris, to allow him to get away. And we're seeing the car drive away. We're seeing a sniper train um, his sights on the car. We're seeing him being pulled by the police and this another, you know, dizzying moment of tension, looking at her face, panic-stricken, like with the back of her head, Drucker thinking that there might be a problem, Vincent on the phone. It's just the confluence of all these things happening. Tell us about the minute itself. What, what are your thoughts on this particular minute? Well, first of all, I think it's interesting that he lets Chris get away. Yes, uh, if you really think about Heat, Chris is, is the only one with a potentially happy ending. Yes. And I've been, I've been thinking about this and dwelling on it, um, it and, and why, why he's sort of the exception to the rule. And uh, one of the things I think is that um, in the context of his scenes with De Niro, he's kind of a dumb guy. He's kind of like an innocent. He's uh, uh, the Lenny to De Niro's uh, of mice and men dynamic, you know. <laughs> yes. And, and and so I think that it's almost like 
well, he's that archetype and we have to kind of spare him. And and I, I think that's kind of I mean, that's 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 where I'm coming from. But I don't I don't know what your thoughts on that are. But I just think I think man has got a sick sense of humor in, in a way with this character. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always thought of Michael Madsen as the the um, uh, not Michael. Uh, sorry, Tom Sizemore. I always get those two confused. Tom Sizemore's Michael Chirito as the dummy. Yep. You know, he's led along by Neil. He'll just bark, you know, bark when he says bark, jump when he says jump, do whatever he needs to do. And I think that because, you know, Kilmer's Chris has such a strong idea about what his limit is, like the sun rises yes. and sets with her, that in this moment, I think it's a great compromise of both of their values because Charlene has been telling, you know, she's been saying to Chris from the beginning, why am I in this rat bastard relationship? You know, so for her, this is an easy way out. Like this is the way, if you want to cut loose of Chris forever, this is it. Like he goes to prison for life. It's over. Um, (laughs) And similarly with Chris, Chris is sacrificing it all, like his potential freedom. Like he can get away perhaps eventually get Charlene and Dominic with him, but he's he refuses to escape with without getting his hands on Charlene first. And I think the tragedy of it is that Michael Mann makes him break, like makes him drive away. Like I don't think at any point, and it's in an upcoming minute, not to steal too much of the thunder of the forthcoming minute, but it's that moment when he's driving away in the car is pure tragedy. Nothing on his face says, I'm happy to get away clean. Like he, he's broken. He's physically broken. And in that moment, he's emotionally broken. So I think it's almost like his freedom is more punishment than being captured. You know, if he, yes. if he it's, it, and so that's where the more that I've reviewed it. And again, I've done it under a microscope <laughs> for like 139 almost hours of this show. Um, uh, so, so maybe I've got a different, a different take, but every time I watch it, I'm just struck by the tragedy of both of them compromising on what you think they're going to do in this sequence, mm-hmm. which is that he actually has to adhere to Neil's advice, which is, you know, you got to cut loose, you know, you got to walk walk away when the heat's around the corner, and he just and he does. He listens, and uh, and I think that compromise is what man is so much more fascinated with. He he loves that compromise because then it allows for Kilmer as Chris to give, you know, something unbelievably striking in that final that final sort of uh, tragic performance, driving away. That shot of him driving away too. Like I don't want to um, cut in on your next guest because that's part of. You're allowed to break. You're allowed to break the discipline, Bill. You're allowed to break the discipline. These guys aren't, but we're allowed to break the discipline. Uh, but that that shot to me is sort of quintessential Michael Mann. Yes, it's because uh, I don't even know if he's moving in that shot. He's sort of driving and not driving. It's night, but it's also day, and it's just it's just brooding and melancholy, and the music's. Uh, you know, mournful, and and it's this blue, saturated image that just is sort of abject brooding. That I I think it's kind of for me uh, almost. I mean, I, I'm 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 drifting off topic here, but uh, that shot to me is kind of the end of Michael Mann. It's like he that is such a such a prototypical Michael Mann shot that it's like he can't 
do that thing again, that Miami Vice uh, MTV cops thing again. He can't do that again. And so the next time he makes a movie, it's insider and he starts to experiment with handheld and, and different things. And he's, he's changing his whole form. Yes. And I, I find that kind of interesting that, that it lands on the final shot of Chris. Yes. It's, now, it, I don't know where I'm going with this. <laughs> no, I, I think I feel you because that's what I say is, you know, it's, this is the crescendo of Michael Mann making, narrative cinema on film and like in a classical narrative sense um you know this is the crescendo the insider is still as coherent a story like you understand what's happening but the formal qualities and the and the tones and the really the two kind of like parallel tracks of like the visual language of each of those two characters Lowell Bergman's Pacino and Wigand Russell Crowe they're they're speaking in two completely you know, completely different visual languages for the entire film. And then he's tying in more sort of authentic, you know, aesthetic, aesthetically authentic perspectives of like the overarching story. But when he gets into that first person subjectivity of the, both of those guys, they're just living, you know, completely different experiences on, on, on screen. And so, yeah, you see, you see touches of it in heat. There's, there's a couple of little minor handheld shots. There's a couple of little uh, experimentations with digital, like one or two POV shots. You get to the insider and the golf course scene is like a piece de resistance of that first person, you know, digital yep. for nighttime photography. And then Ali, Collateral, you know, these are these are movies, you know, where the, the very way that he tells the story from the ring um, with Ali is contingent on those, you know, handheld, you know, first person experiential shooting and things like that. So it starts to really, he really takes, um, takes time to evolve and things like that. But yeah, I, I agree. It's like this, this moment that I think abject brooding, I think you nailed it. It's like, you can't, you can't, you can't go back to that. Like the thesis of everything he's been working to up until this point is just crystallized with heat. It's the perfect expression of all of these threads of thematic threads that we've been seeing. And in this, and yes. in, in this scene, um, you know, having to cut loose and having to wait with bated breath to see if, to see if, you know, that has actually come off, um, I think is, is, you know, that beautiful agony that he just wants, he's wanted from us the whole time. And this, this scene is it, this scene is it, the perfect expression of it. <laughs> well, it's, I, I took about, I probably took about five or six years off from heat somewhere <laughs> in the, in, in, the, in, in, between say 2005 and 2015, um, but I had been, of course, regularly seeing his latest movies, *My Advice* and *Collateral* and uh, *Public Enemies* and *Black Hat*. But it, it was a shock going back to *Heat*, how classically the movie is made. Yes, it was. It was like I oh I forgot this is Michael Mann as well, or this is what he used to be, and it's like the apotheosis of of that era. And then he can't go any farther with it, and he, he changes his style. You know? Yeah, and I, I think um, I, I do that sometimes with Last of the Mohicans. I, I guess Heats because I'm so familiar with it, with the show, and so in depth with it. But I watch Mohicans, I'm like, oh, this is just like a 1930s movie with yes. modern aesthetic. Like it's just Absolutely. a big, beautiful 30s, luscious romance um, and, uh, yeah, that, that's like that, I think that shakes me up cause it's like literally the preceding film to hate is Mohicans, which again, huge popular film, um, very rewatchable, um, a lot of fun, but yeah, like the style is, you know, pure 
luscious 1930s narrative. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's a Warner film. Yes. So it's got that kind of, um, in that tradition of the, the gangsters dramas of the thirties, it's, it's sort of like he's, he's carrying the torch, but, uh, so when you go to those other films, um, you said you really like public enemies. It's something you've gone back to a lot of the time. Do you see, um, you know, when you're sort of charting th- through those two films, Heat and Public Enemies, and you're kind of looking at two different sides of man that's kind of telling similar stories? Yeah, I think I think the one thing that he's never lost is um... – and he might disagree with this because he's always saying, "I don't try to manipulate people's emotions. I, I'm, I'm not trying to do that. That's modernism, and I'm, I'm not that." But I, I think that that the the thing that's kind of running through all his movies is this, um, uh, <clears throat> is this emotionalism and also this um, kind of uh, obsession with relationships and romance. And, you know, and on some level for me, like, uh, Heat being this ensemble piece where we're constantly going back and forth between different couples, it's kind of like Michael Mann's Love Actually. <laughs> <laughs> and and it, it's like the, the gunfights and everything are kind of a Trojan horse for for the stuff that Michael Mann really wants to talk about. No, I, I, I tell you, I tell you, Love Actually could be improved with a couple of you know, automatic weapons in the middle and a heist. <laughs> exactly. I don't and, care yeah, what anyone would, says. If you think that's a masterpiece, just add a heist scene in the middle and I think you'd just elevate it just that little bit more. That would have improved Love Actually <laughs> so much. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, like I think I think it's kind of that's maybe um, – it, it's not what we think of when we think of Michael Mann, but it, it's, it's what I respond to when I'm watching his work is, is how um, – how sad relationships are in his movies and and De Niro in this movie he's like this um this this guy who's finally got his first girlfriend you know and, and <laughs> when you put it in those terms it sounds yeah. really sad it sounds much it sadder <laughs> but but if you look at that coffee shop scene yes where where uh, the coffee shop scene and and Pacino asks him do you, do you have a woman De Niro, I swear, you can almost see his eyes light up, and he's trying not to give it away, but he's so excited that he can finally answer this question. Yeah, yeah, I got a woman. I, I have a woman. Yeah. What, what do you tell her? And then he smiles. <laughs> he smiles yeah. like a novice. He goes, "I tell yeah. him, I'm a, he tell him, I tell him I'm a salesman." And I loved, you know, Pacino, the guy who's confessing that he's on the downslope of marriage. His third is like it's pretty vacant, no? Like, he's, I think Pacino sees the writing on the wall. And then he like, <laughs> exactly. he's like, it is what it is, but if not, we better go do something else, pal. <laughs> so and, and that's, yeah, that's, that to me, um, uh, maybe, maybe what heat, uh, maybe the reason it resonates, uh, for people is that it, it like, all, like a lot of Michael Mann movies, it's, it's really about relationships and it's, uh, but Michael Mann's score is very, um, uh, He's, he's, he believes in chivalry and gallantry, and he's very classically romantic. And so it appeals to some sort of, I think, deep thing within us of, of 
loving the doomed romance, you know. Oh yeah, and I think he, and, he that's, and especially because he he takes the necessary, you know. I think doomed romance for doomed romance sake is very trite. Like I think we we're all we can all sniff out when it feels inauthentic. But I think the one thing that Michael Mann does with the doom romantics is he gives them a lot of time. Like you get to know people, you get to know their struggles, you get to, and sometimes you actually get to hear them articulate what their challenges is. And I think here, um, you know, Courtney Howard, a really great um, American film critic has been on the show a couple of times. And she said, you know, her her favorite subgenre of films is like adults, um, you know, married people arguing is her favorite genre. I said, uh, uh, and I actually said, I need a letterbox list with all of her favorite married people (laughs) arguing movies. But she loves heat for that particular reason is because you've got Diane Venora, who's an absolute powerhouse. You've got Ashley Judd and these two phenomenal um, actors who are acting against their husbands and, and, and getting into arguments about things. And some of it's regular, like with Ashley Judd, it's like the risk is not worth the reward of what you do. You know, how many times have you had a challenge if you're in a relationship about, you know, are you making enough money to do what you're going to do? Is it, you know, are you, are you able to support your family? You know, really basic questions, but in this heightened state. And similarly with Justine, it's about, can I, I want more time with you, is the fundamental underpinning of a lot of the stuff that she's doing. But again, it's magnified in Michael Mann's sort of epic romantic capital R romantic sort of sense. And so you've got this um, you've got this great contrast between you know the inner workings of the lives of the characters and then you've got the stakes. Because I think so many, and you would know this, Bill, better than anyone, so how many films have taken the lessons of heat or, or thought they were taking the lessons of heat and got them all wrong? They've just made action, like high-intensity action, you know, authentic gunplay. And they've just missed that, you know, a large majority of this movie is around understanding each of the individual characters and their motivations and then the fallout and the consequences from their actions. And like that's 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 why this movie is elevated is because the action is despite Tom Sizemore saying the action is the juice. The action is not actually the juice for why this movie is amazing. It's it's that these people, the people and their lives are the juice. Yes, and I, I think that's why he's maybe attracted to crime as a, an ongoing theme too because he can heighten the emotions yes. without being contrived. You know, he can actually do these <laughs> these sort of love actually melodramatic things. Uh, I, but, I, but I, that is hundred percent going in the episode <laughs> description. Bill Chambers calls hate Michael Mann's love actually. That is a ama- <laughs> that's that I'm tweeting that immediately as this episode concludes. I love that. So like that's one of my favorite things that's been said in 139 episodes, and I thank you, sir, for it. It's brilliant but uh, but he you know like uh, <clears throat> within the crime context he can get away with 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 those uh extremes mm. of romance uh without it feeling sort of contrived or or because when you've got life and death stakes bill i think that's what makes it makes it enthralling because, mm-hmm. it, because you know that's life and death you know it's jail you know it's freedom or it's or it's oppressive prison, you know. Like it, it, it there's, it, it's, it doesn't get any, yep. More, you know, you know, as the great Pauline Cows is like kiss, kiss, bang, bang. Like that's that's what we want, right? It's like this movie has that has those ingredients of the romance and the gunplay, and and it's at, at a very basic level, and then you can sort of we can examine all those other bits, but those necessary ingredients are why we actually are just jiving with it so much. 
Yeah, I, even even the um, Pacino character. Oh yeah. His his romance being doomed, or his marriage being doomed. Uh, that's that's a that's something that recurs throughout Michael Mann on Crime Story on mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> in Manhunter, and I think a lot of that might be about Michael Mann himself being a workaholic. Absolutely. And, and, well, that's how I've that's how I've read it. <laughs> that's how I've yes, read. It. And identifying with with that cop obsession, and that's how he's sort of translating his feelings about that. But it's interesting, like even even. Pacino's in a relatively healthy marriage at the beginning of that movie, uh, but it's doomed because he ultimately cares about its work. Yeah, he cares. He cares, yeah. about, he cares about his pursuit, and yes. I think that what what's so cool about Justine as a character in this movie is that she points out to him that it may not even be the job. Like it's it's more elemental than that. It's like you're yes. you're in the chase. Which again is a romantic take on the concept of like, you, you yes. know, you're, you're a hunter. You're sniffing out your prey. You're doing this, and it's like a, it's like a drive. It's like a bloodlust. <laughs> There's something that might be something deeper and more wrong with it than you've, you've, you're outwardly willing to admit. You also get the sense that that maybe he's uh, almost nothing without it. Yes. Like, like he, he has nothing to give when he's not pursuing anybody. And he has nothing to give when he is pursuing people. Yeah. Because really his whole being is invested in that one thing. <clears throat> yeah, it's like... And I don't think he's even aware of it to a certain extent. Yeah. Because it, I, I think he doesn't realize how much he's committed and invested to it. And then the the awakening for Vincent as a character throughout this movie, especially in the in the sort of second half of the film, is is that realization. He's he's nothing without that chase. Yeah. And by the time he's ready for that final pursuit of Neil, when he thinks he's finally ensnared him and one of these traps has actually has actually pulled, and we may we may have him. Um, you know, I think a lot of people have talked about. And, and, and I won't steal the, the thunder of the minute, but so many people have wanted to talk about the way that Pacino skips down those stairs. You know, he, he leaves that hospital room skipping down yeah. the stairs. Yeah. The way of that shot of him running. Running down I the mean, stairs. Like, he is it's thrilled. It's funny, but it's sad. It's, it's, oh, it's, de- it's devastating. And be, the, what, I, what I had sort of not forgotten, but I hadn't, it hadn't had the emotional resonance for me is that man immediately after Pacino does this sort of dance down the stairs after Justine gives him permission to leave. And she acts very strong and tough when in that moment, there's like a a breath in the movie where it cuts back to Justine and you watch her sort of fold inward. Like she knew she was giving him some satisfaction to go off and do his thing. And in that moment, she really needed support and she really needed something, but she had to kind of, she has to fake it. And then deal with the consequences of it before she can move on. But she's she's all the more devastated because that's her actually giving him permission to be himself um, in a moment where re- she really needs it. Like there's you know his stepdaughter has just committed you know attempted to commit suicide, and and she's got no one else around that she can get support from. But she's like giving him permission in that moment in that breath, and you're like, wow, this is just special. It it she's almost something of a mirror image to Charlene. 
Absolutely. Where she's she's kind of letting him go. Yes. And and there's no um, it, no hard feelings, you know. And I, it, it, my gift to you, go be free. It's, like, yeah, it's a tragic love of like, go. Yes. I'm going to cut you loose here. Uh, it, it makes me wonder, though. Uh, see, the, the, the final image of the movie is, of course, De Niro and Pacino holding hands. Yeah. Which is, is an intensely emotional image. And it I says so much. <laughs> but I, I always wondered, you know, is, is, is it a tragic image or is, it, is there hope in it? Like, I don't know where I'm going with this exactly. But, but it, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 know, I know what you mean. I think that, you know, a lot of people in isolation like to blow up moments, meme-worthy moments in Al Pacino's performance to say, oh, look at him being silly in this movie. If you look at his actual holistic performance through the entire film, and especially in that crescendo moment at the end, um, the, like, tsunami of emotions that pour through his face in that moment, I think there's a lot of... It's a, it's very ambivalent. It's yeah. It could be read as both the most tragic moment of the whole film or it does have some hope or it has new possibilities or what. But I think that I think the weight of the universe is in his eyes at the end of that, in, in that movie, like, you know, that, that, those two clasped hands, uh, like that's the fulcrum of the universe right there. Like that's like everything that this entire film has been <laughs> dragging us towards and they're holding their hands there. And uh, yeah, yes. it's, it's a, it's an it's an insanely powerful moment. And I, I think I think it's a total fair read to say I don't know whether it's tragic or whether it's hopeful, because like, yeah, in a way they're the healthiest couple in the movie. <laughs> they have a really nice date. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's some something of destiny between those two, and yes. uh, you know I like I I had read that there was some consideration at the beginning of possibly having the two of them kill each other yes and uh, uh, either michael mann or al pacino vetoed that but i always thought that pacino kind of does die at the end of that movie absolutely couldn't agree like more. That's, yeah there's this the, what the does he hands. have left in that moment mm-hmm. nothing nothing hey, he'll he'll find another dinero maybe down the line but you know it's em- it's an empty feeling at the end of that movie and yet so overwhelmingly sad because of the movie music and the and i just remember the grandeur of that image uh, on opening day was it, it just made my heart sore and uh, again it was exhausting <laughs> uh, but yeah well look i think that is the perfect way to wrap up this the 139th minute of one heat minute is with our hearts full and soaring but exhausted um (laughs) i want to thank the legendary bill chambers from filmfreakcentral.net bill thank you so much for being a part of the show um i'm a big fan and i really deeply appreciate it and i think if you've done one thing uh for me apart from all of the the service you've given us with amazing content over you know like 22 years um you've just coined heat is michael mann's love actually which might be one of my favorite <laughs> things that's ever been said so thank you so much thank you thank oh, I'm, you I'm, and i'm thank not gonna you. live that one down i don't think no i love it i love it I've, i can't wait i can't wait um 
thank you so much for being a part of the show folks thank you so much for listening along um obviously filmfreakcentral.net search for it you can find you can find um bill there you can find walter chaw there um and if you want to find bill on on the twitter sphere you um need only look for at film flm freak frk central um is uh, bill's uh, twitter handle and you can find him there um and all of the other great stuff you'll link off to that but uh look thank you so much again mate i really appreciate it this is this is a, a lot of fun thank you for having me blake this was an honor guys thank you again for listening mr garth franklin thank you for our web design mr paul davies thank you for our theme and we'll catch you on another episode of one hit minute just around the corner i don't know whether you'll be your heart will be soaring or you'll be exhausted <laughs> <laughs>